Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From the Smithsonian Magazine, this is an article on how the U.S. almost became a nation of hippo ranchers. <laughs> I know it sounds absolutely preposterous to our modern mind, but in 1910, as recently as 1910, a failed house bill sought to increase the availability of low-cost meat by importing hippopotamuses that would be killed to make, quote, lake cow bacon. Mm-mm, wow. No. I don't, I gotta say, <laughs> I'd like to try lake cow bacon. That doesn't sound bad. But those are, those are three things that don't usually go together, though. Right. Yes. None of those match. <laughs> but only by uh, an act of oversight by God, surely. All right, but we're going to go a little bit further back to 1884 to set the scene where the water hyacinth delighted audiences when it made its North American debut at the Cotton States Exposition in New Orleans. Now, this is a plant that's got these delicate purple flowers, glossy leaves, and it's from the Amazon. It was poised to become the new frontier of ornamental gardening, according to the fair organizers. And yeah, they handed them out to anybody who wanted them. But they didn't realize how quickly the plant was going to overtake hmm. everywhere. So it spread like a virus first in Louisiana, then in Florida. Within 20 years, it had overtaken waterways across the South, threatening long-established trade routes, hmm. which, you know, yeah, the environment, but once you get into the trade yeah, routes, yeah. we got to do something, right? Workers who were hoping to halt the hyacinth's growth, they would just break the plants apart. They would dredge them from the riverbanks. They even tried soaking the blooms in gasoline and setting them on fire, but nothing phased the plant. So these poor Southerners are waging this never-ending botanical battle, and a second crisis starts to bubble up in the United States. Now, around the turn of the 20th century, inexpensive meat, which had up until then been a product of American prosperity that had long been available even to the poorest immigrants, started getting into short supply. Meat packers were blaming grain prices and cattle shortages, and the butchers were blaming the meat packers, and most everybody else was blaming the Beef Trust, which was a nickname for the nation's largest meatpacking companies for, quote, conspiring to profit at their expense. Mm. So, okay, the only way to solve both problems at once, according to Louisiana Representative Robert F. Broussard, was to embrace hippopotamus ranching. Two birds, one stone. So on March 24th, 1910, Broussard stood before the House Committee on Agriculture to lay out the details of his American hippo bill. And yes, there is a link to House Resolution 23261. (laughs) Now, he believed that importing the hungry herbivores from Africa would not only rid Louisiana and Florida of the hyacinths that were smothering their waterways when the animals were good and fat, because on average, hippos weigh between, oh, you know, 3,000 and 9,000 pounds. Farmers could then take their inventory to slaughter and revitalize America's low-cost meat supply. But Hippo meat would be just the start. 
They started thinking about dick-dicks and other little small antelopes from sub-Saharan Africa that might become a mainstay on family farms. Or perhaps herds of Cape buffalo and bushbucks could roam like cattle across western ranches. As John Mualim wrote for The Atavist magazine in 2013, he, quote, appears to have spent his career championing ideas that were simultaneously perfectly logical and extravagantly bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> the other members of Broussard's posse of hippo schemers, we had the charismatic American military scout Frederick Russell Burnham, who had realized the potential of hippo farming while stationed in Africa during the Second Boer War, and South African army captain and later German spy Fritz Jobert Duquesse. Duquesne told the panel, I was born in Africa and most of my early life was spent eating hippopotamus. In fact, stone tools found in Kenya's Homa Peninsula suggest early humans were eating the animals as early as 2.6 million to 3 million <laughs> years ago. So this is not as preposterous as you think. And Duquesne added, as to the quality of this animal as food, I just want to call your attention to the vigorous race of Dutchmen that lived on hippopotamus, because I guess the proof is in the genetic pudding there. I mean, I, I thought hippopotamuses were really dangerous. I thought hunting them was like really hard. I didn't realize there were tons of people killing and eating them and absolutely treating them as farm animals. Well, let's be fair. We're really at the strategic brainstorming level oh, okay. here, right? Well, so, I mean, the Dutch were pulling it off somehow. Well, somehow, but we'll get to that. Okay. That was definitely one of the uh, realistic factors that uh, ended up making this not a great idea. But the U.S. has imported foreign animals en masse before. Between 1891 and 1902, we welcomed over 1,200 reindeer to fill the vacancy left by Alaska's diminishing native caribou herds. Hmm. And at the time of the hearing of this hippo bill, around 20,000 reindeer were confidently striding across the frozen tundra. Like, it totally worked. Even former President Teddy Roosevelt, he was super behind this hippo plan. He pledged to give Broussard his full support on the matter. But as far as eating the water hyacinths goes, they're not really nutritious at all. They're about 95% water by weight. In fact, there is so much water that when an animal consumes the plant, the body has to start regulating. They have to up the metabolism. They basically eat it and lose weight. <laughs> and yeah, tank-like hippos, as far as their temperament, it would be really hard to keep them from busting through fences on family farms. Mm -hmm. Because yes, as Chen pointed out, they are one of the deadliest animals in the world. They kill an estimated 500 people a year. But there were even more factors that would have made this a nightmare had it come to fruition. Even though hippos don't spend a lot of time eating in the water, they do poop a lot in it, and that creates an ecological threat as weighty as the one Broussard was trying to solve in the first place. Hippo waste will propel the overgrowth of algae, it'll smother native plants, native fish, and we know this in part because in Colombia, dozens of hippos that descended from four that once lived in drug kingpin Pablo mm -hmm. Escobar's mm -hmm. private zoo. I've heard about these wild hippos. That's exactly right. They are stomping around. They're muddying up the river bottom. They make the water turbid. The river in Colombia went from being nice and clear to now just miles of muddy, smelly, algae-filled water. It's an ecological disaster. Mm. So poor Broussard, he did not live to complete his term, dying in 1918 after a long illness. And by then, war-hardened Americans had actually gotten used to living without meat and mm. things like butter and coffee because the war. And we also had new technologies that allowed for more meat production with fewer resources. 
the scheme to populate the U.S. with dozens of non-native animal species was soon forgotten. But hey, more than a century later, we still got water hyacinths. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, between 1975 and 2013, Louisiana spent $124 million on efforts to keep the invasive plant at bay. Maybe it's not too late. All it needs is a new <laughs> champion. Broussard died, but maybe somebody else needs to step up and say, listen, this insane <gasps> idea is very logical. We need to bring just a couple of hippos out and then we'll reap the consequences <laughs> in another 10 years. I think they were just targeting the wrong animal. Have you ever seen those giant Flemish rabbits? The ones that are no. like sizes of dogs? Oh, man. Do they eat water hyacinths? I mean, they're bunnies. Yeah. So I'm sure they'll eat like any number of vegetation. I, I just mm -hmm. personally want to see extremely large rabbits populate the South. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. if there's one thing rabbits are known for, it's keeping their population. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't have any problems bringing over big rabbits here, right? No, right? no, no, no. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Vice.com, and it's titled Maryland License Plates Now Inadvertently Advertising Filipino Online Casino. Wait, okay. <laughs> you heard that right. Yes. <laughs> so in 2012, to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812, Maryland redesigned its standard license plate to read Maryland War of 1812, and the URL is www.starspangled200.org. But sometime within the last year, that website stopped telling people about how Marylander <laughs> Francis Scott Key was inspired to write the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, after watching British ships during the War of 1812, and started instead directing to a site called GlobeInternational.info, in which a blinking, bikini-clad woman advertises <laughs> Philippines' best betting site. Deposit oh, no. 100, receive 250. Wow. So the issue was spotted by a Redditor who said, I was never a fan of having a plate celebrating the War of 1812, but I'm even more upset now that I and tons of other Marylanders are driving advertisements for international online gambling. Nice. <laughs> Domain registration information shows that starspangled200.org has been re-registered and transferred a handful of times within the last few years. It's not exactly clear when it stopped being a website about American history. <laughs> the Internet Archive shows that as recently as December 2022, the website explained that the young United States was embroiled in the War of 1812 and the Chesapeake Bay region felt the brunt of it. A snapshot from today, however, explains <laughs> that extremely lenient laws govern gaming in the Philippines. <laughs> This is the result. <laughs> oh, the writer of this article is spot on, man. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a result of the growing popularity of gambling among tourists and the enormous casino resorts that have recently been built. A spokesperson for the Maryland Department of Transportation's Motor Vehicle Administration told Motherboard that there are currently 798,000 active War of 1812 license plates. Wow. wow. Yeah, that's a lot of free advertisement. <laughs> so the website printed on the plates is not owned by the Motor Vehicle Administration. The plate's design and content originated from the War of 1812 Bicentennial Commission created in 2007. Star Spangled 200 Inc. is the nonprofit entity affiliated with the commission that led the efforts to raise funds for bicentennial projects and events. The MVA does not endorse the views or the content on the current website using that URL and is working with the agency's IT department to identify options to resolve the current issue. 
Boy, this is why you really need to have a content strategy with governance in your plans, man. Yeah. I mean, you got to keep those legacy URLs going forever. You know, Otherwise, it's like that permanent record we had been warned about our entire life. Yes. This is going <laughs> on your permanent one. record. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I wasn't 15 with the internet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. This comes from Wired. This machine makes you hallucinate. Okay. Oh, is that a good cool. thing? Yeah, yeah, well, in various cities in the UK, more than 40,000 people visited the, quote, dream machine. <laughs> and what is this revolutionary dream machine? It's a large space designed to induce hallucinatory experiences with white strobe lights and electronic music, otherwise Ooh. known as a rave. Yeah, that sounds unpleasant, <laughs> but all right. <laughs> right. Though unlike raves, uh, one of the collaborators, Anil Seth, is a neuroscientist mm. at the University of Sussex. But he says, quote, we had guardians there to guide and relax people at the beginning <laughs> with breathing exercises. I don't know, man. Sounds far out. Yeah. As long it. as they yeah. had tie-dye and orange slices, I think it's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. Other than neuroscientists, the team also included artists, engineers, designers, and musicians. There's a video in the article that shows the process-ish. They leave out a lot in the video. Mm. <laughs> so here's what I could gather from the experience. 20 to 30 people will go into a room at a time and then are asked to lay down and close their eyes. Once they're down, white light flashes as dreamy music plays. Then after the 30 minute session, participants would typically describe their experience with adjectives like vivid, kaleidoscopic, powerful and magic. One of the aims of the dream machine is to study something that Anil Seth has been investigating for more than a decade, the effect of stroboscopic lights on the brain. Quote, the flickering light gives rise to really unexpected and powerful perceptual effects and conscious experiences that are kind of unrelated to what's out there. It's just white light, yet people see colors and shapes. He believes the effect may be a key to understanding the neural basis of visual experiences. Hmm. As expected, though still fascinating, everyone had a different experience, mm -hmm. even though the stimulus was the same, mm -hmm. right? And one of the other goals, too, is to map that interperceptual diversity. The team also has another project called Perception Census, which is an online survey that attempts to measure how different people perceive different dimensions, like sound, time, color, and even expectations. And it seems like a study I wouldn't mind doing. Yeah. Just kind of going in there and closing your eyes and seeing if you hallucinate. I mean, but if the music is not to your taste, doesn't that just become like a torture session? It's more, yeah, it's more atmospheric. So it's more like going into yoga. Oh, okay. But how long before someone has a devastating seizure under those strobe lights and the whole thing gets sued out of existence? Like, yeah. what? Oh, I mean, undiagnosed <laughs> epilepsy. Whoops, sorry. Yeah. Mm hmm. I'm sure there's a warning. Oh, sure. There, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But so far, there was no mention of that. Mm -hmm. But I do. If you've got epilepsy, this is probably not probably for you. Or maybe yeah. it's even better than it is for everybody else. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe it does actually does something. Already more than 20,000 people from more than 100 countries have taken part in the census, huh. making it the largest of its kind. Only 7.86 billion people left to ask. Right, right, right. Mm. I, honestly, it's a good track record. If they've had that many and no one's died yet, it's probably safe. 
Well, no, 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 I'm sorry. Let's be clear. The 20,000 people are for the census. That's oh. the census of just asking about perception. Okay. They've, well, they've had 40,000 for the Dream Machine. So oh. even more for the Dream Machine. Okay. All right. And nobody's sued yet. yet. I mean, it is in the UK. I don't know how litigious <laughs> they are compared to us. Right. But. So the best part about this is if you want to go, if you're in the UK, you can trip for a moment. It won't last long and it isn't illegal. Wait, (laughs) sorry. They heard me talking about it. It's now illegal in the state of Texas. Is it really? No. no. Okay. <laughs> you, I thought well, you see, know, like... may, maybe maybe by the time you edit this, right, it right, may. right. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> next link. Next link. All right. This next one is from the Guardian, and it's called "Australian Scientists Create New Class of Titanium Alloys." Hmm. So first, let's talk about titanium a little bit. It's sometimes known as the magic metal because it's incredibly strong and durable, but also lightweight. Titanium is also more corrosion resistant than even stainless steel, which means it's a great choice for use in submarines and desalinization plants. And it's biocompatible, which allows over a thousand tons of titanium a year to be made into bone implants like rods and pins. It's also critical in aeronautics, where titanium constitutes about 20% of the weight of a typical aircraft. But for the most part, all of these uses are not actually pure titanium. There are a number of titanium alloy recipes with slightly different properties, but by far the most common is TI-6AL4V, which indicates titanium plus 6% aluminum and 4% vanadium. It was invented back in 1954 and currently accounts for more than 50% of the market for titanium. On the other hand, there are also some alloys that are so bad they're considered scrap metal. Oxygen in particular is sometimes called the kryptonite of titanium because it tends to make it very brittle. Another unhelpful substance that can work its way in is iron, which causes the titanium to segregate into defect flex. And I don't know what that means. I wish they had a picture of how segregating into defect flex is different than breaking. But or like rusting, yeah, in a way. But that's what yeah, that just feels like. Not only specific, but like super scenario. Like, yeah, ugh, defect flakes, ugh, rejection. Ugh. <laughs> it's very judgmental. Yes. But recently, Dr. Ting Ting Song and Professor Ma Chan of RMIT University in Australia have developed a method for 3D printing titanium from metal powder. And of course, this is useful in all the ways that 3D printing is useful because it means we can create shapes instead of machining them. But it also means that they can produce nanoscale-sized titanium crystals within the alloy. And it turns out that when you exert that level of control over where every single atom goes, it's actually fine to have iron and oxygen in the mix. They just have to be distributed properly. In fact, not only are oxygen and iron not a problem anymore when you're using 3D printing, this new prototype demonstrates that when the iron and oxygen are arranged in exactly the right way, they do just as good a job as the vanadium and aluminum in the first place, while also being considerably more abundant and inexpensive. And even better, because they're arranging each atom within the piece, they can create pieces which have different properties at different points along their length. So, for example, one end of a titanium rod might be more ductile, which then slowly fades into greater strength at the other end of the rod. Another benefit of using iron and oxygen instead of aluminum and vanadium is sustainability, because junk titanium with a high iron and oxygen content could theoretically be broken down and recycled into this new alloy. 
And it's also not an accident that all this research happened in Australia, because it turns out that Australia is number one in the world for titanium mineral reserves. So I guess if you're looking for somewhere to invest, like Australian titanium manufacturing is going to be a hot market in the next decade. (laughs) And, you know, you can recover metal rods out of corpses, I guess, now. Yeah, I have have titanium in my neck. So, yeah, I guess they can take it out. Yeah, please don't. No, no, no. It's it's doing something very important right now. We're going to keep it. Well, right now, yeah. But I'm saying after I'm done using it, I'm not going to use it forever. (laughs) And, you know, it's probably going to have a lot of oxygen and iron in it at that point because you're you're full of that stuff. So, (laughs) next link. Next link. We have a lovely piece from Atlas Obscura The Historic Grand Canyon Adventure Two Women Had for Science. So, We're going to go back to the summer of 1937. We have this esteemed botanist and a local innkeeper, a man, who got to talking. And they patched a plan to run the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. Now, a journey like this had never before been attempted. The botanist from University of Michigan, one Elzada Clover, she intended to make the first ever botanical survey of the river and its environs. Hmm. Now, the innkeeper, one Norman Nevels, he wanted to commercialize trips down the Colorado River, despite never having run the river himself. He was hmm. a, an entrepreneur, shall we right. say. <laughs> right. So the next summer, Clover and Nevels, along with two other boatmen, a photographer, and Botanist Lois Jotter, Elzada's close friend and a University of Michigan graduate student, set out. Newspapers had little doubt the hodgepodge crew would fail, even perish on the river. Women like Clover and Jotter weren't sturdy enough to survive the journey, journalists wrote in papers across the country. And it was weird to begin with that these women were in science at all at the time. Like, Clover had a doctorate in botany, and Lois Jodder was just a few years away from getting hers when they went on this expedition. And at that time, there were not many women getting doctorates in anything, yeah. let alone a scientific field. Mm-hmm. But this was a time when botany was changing. In the 19th century, the field was really open to women because it was mostly about collecting. There was an attitude Mm. that it was appropriate for women to go collect flowers. But then in the 20th century, botany began to professionalize. And instead of bringing women along for the ride, they got pushed out. (laughs) Right, of course. Elzada, who's the older of the two, she was 41 years old when she ran the river. And she was in that kind of transition period of having been a botanist and starting to be in the edged out demographic. So her field was no longer as welcoming to her as it had been, whereas Lois was from the younger generation. She was 24. She had to learn these very sophisticated laboratory techniques to keep her foothold in botany. So obviously, indigenous people had been living there and running the river forever. But for white people, it was considered this last unexplored corner of the United States. Hmm. And it was an interesting time for the river itself because it was still mostly undammed, but that was starting to change. So Hoover Dam had just been built. We did not yet have the Glen Canyon Dam. And the water was still quite wild. There had been other non-Indigenous expeditions that had gone down the river before, about 12 of them between 1869 and 1938. There were a lot of newspaper stories about the last woman who attempted to run the Colorado River, one Bessie Hyde, who in 1928 disappeared with her husband on their honeymoon trip, never found. Mm. So that was kind of held up as the example of why, hey, y'all shouldn't be doing this. Look what happened last time. I mean, she had a good, strong man with her and she still perished. (laughs) 
Several men, even. I mean, yeah. they had several men with them. But, you know, that fear wasn't unfounded. Lois sure. actually packed up all of her stuff before she left. So if she didn't come back, she basically settled her affairs. So huh. whether it was a secret fear that they might not return or just the hyper practicality of a woman who has, mm -hmm. you know, a PhD in botany. Outwardly, they were still saying to the family and the press, like, this is going to be fine. We've got better maps. We've got better boats. Norm Nevels is very experienced. All of those were, of course, total lies. <laughs> Norm <laughs> Nevels had never done the trip before. The boats were a design that had never been tested. And by the way, there is a picture at this point of the article that shows the boats looking like some handmade summer wow. camp situation. Like, not something I would have felt good about going in at all. But Elzada and Lois really wanted this opportunity to collect plants. And so they knew there were going to be risks, there were going to be hardships. So they started at Green River, Utah, and they had a couple of nice days floating down the Green River, which is comparatively calm. Then they hit the Colorado River, and they're going through pretty big canyons. We go through Cataract Canyon, Glen Canyon, which is now underneath Lake Powell, but it wasn't at the time, and then the Grand Canyon. Now they're ending the trip at Lake Mead, which is filling up behind Hoover Dam, so it's a journey of over 600 miles. There are six of them all together. And the theory going in was that the three men, ooh, big burning man, they're going to row the boats. They're going to take care of the boatman duties. And the women are going to do the woman stuff. They're going to collect plants, right? Mm. But they quickly realized they were all going to have to pitch in to get the boats down the river. So with all the attention of just transport, the women had very little time to actually collect plants. They had to Aww. get up early before dawn. Then they would stay up late after sunset. That was their plant collecting time. Mm. Oh, and by the way, they were also required to cook for the whole crew. Now, as far as the biographer can tell, there was zero discussion about this in advance. It was just accepted that women would do the cooking. So you can imagine how busy and exhausted and frankly pissed off they must have been. <laughs> now, a moment that stands out from the expedition. The first day they were on the Colorado River, they stopped to look at the very first rapid to see the path to take through the rocks and hazards. Now, one of the boats is not tied quite right, and it pulls free. The food supplies are split up between the three boats. So if they lose a boat, they're in serious trouble. So mm. Lois runs to the shoreline, jumps into the other boat with her boatman, Don Harris, and they start to chase it. They go about four miles through seven major rapids without scouting. <laughs> and this is the first time Harris or Jotter have ever gone through the rapids. It's basically just one long rapid with high water the whole way. Now, they do find the boat. And Harris decides he's going to walk back and tell everybody, hey, it's okay. So he leaves her there. <laughs> she spends her first night on the Colorado River alone. But she had a great time. <laughs> she says she just sat there, had a wonderful time, wasn't upset about it. Mm. All right. So the expedition was a bit hairy, but... Did they get the work done? Oh, boy, did they? So they published two papers about the botany of the river. They included a plant list of over 50 species, and they're still being used today. They're the only botanical papers that were published about the region before Glen Canyon Dam was built in the 1960s. So it's one of the few resources you can use to recreate a picture of what the river looks like before all the big dams went in. Did they find any water hyacinths is the question. <laughs> <laughs> Cacti only, baby, in the canyon. Oh, okay. That's it. Right, right, right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
Got another short one for us to combat a bit of misinformation. This one comes to us from TheGuardian.com. It's titled, U.S. Air Force Denies Running Simulation in Which AI Drone Killed Operator. <laughs> oh, I heard about yeah. this. So they're denying that it happened. Okay. It Wait, yeah. it was just a simulation, yeah. though. It wasn't like an actual run. Well, it wasn't even a simulation, <laughs> is correct. <laughs> So the U.S. Air Force has denied it has conducted an AI simulation in which a drone decided to, quote unquote, kill its operator to prevent it from interfering with its efforts to achieve its mission. An official said last month that in a virtual test staged by the U.S. military, an Air Force drone controlled by AI had used highly unexpected strategies to achieve its goal. Cole Tucker Cinco Hamilton described a simulated test in which a drone powered by artificial intelligence was advised to destroy an enemy's air defense systems and ultimately attacked anyone who interfered with that order. Mm. Hamilton, during the Future Combat Air and Space Capabilities Summit in London in May, said the system started realizing that while they did identify the threat, at times the human operator would tell it not to kill that threat, but it got its points by killing that threat. <laughs> so what did it do? It killed the operator. It <laughs> killed the operator because that person was keeping it from accomplishing its objective. Hmm. He also said, we trained the system. Hey, don't kill the operator. That's bad. You're going to lose points if you do that. So what does it start doing? It starts destroying the communication tower that the operator <gasps> uses to communicate with the drone <laughs> to stop it from killing the target. Yeah. No real person was harmed. But again, this did not happen. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Hamilton, who is an experimental fighter test pilot, has warned against relying too much on AI and said the test showed you can't have a conversation about artificial intelligence, machine learning, if you're not going to talk about ethics and AI. However, in a statement to Insider, the U.S. Air Force spokesperson Anne Stefanik denied any such simulation had taken place. The Department of the Air Force has not conducted any such AI drone simulations and remains committed to ethical and responsible use of AI technology. It appears the colonel's comments were taken out of context and were meant to be anecdotal. And they didn't really get into the details, but I did see a little speculation on Twitter, you know, who knows. But what it sounds like actually happened is it was really just a bunch of people speculating around mm -hmm. a desk and just talking <laughs> mm -hmm. like, what if you ran this simulation? Well, this might happen. That might happen. Right. And then in more absurd outcomes, somebody else apparently said, and I'm sorry, I cannot pull any sources on this, you know, Twitter right. uh, and my brain. But <laughs> they were basically like, well, we don't really need to run the simulation because we already know what would happen because we talked about it. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing is a whole bunch of nothing made up mm. for based on absolutely no actual simulation or anything like you that. You know what we should now, probably do is increase the budget so these fine minds have even more <laughs> money to fuel these, hey, we already did the work just now. We don't actually got to do it. I was going to say, I've seen on recently, University of Texas has a new master's degree for AI. Mm. Now, I noticed the one class that was absolutely required with ethics. Well, that's good. Right. I think also maybe they're having a hard time coming up with enough courses for an AI master's <laughs> degree. So they're like, oh, this is one we already have. We have an ethics <laughs> course. Let's put that in uh -huh. there. <laughs> well, to blame AI or to have fear of AI is is so misplaced. I think it obscures the real fear, which is who's driving the AI. Right. Well, and I think some of that fear comes from knowing that we're actually a problem. And so when AI right. figures that out, we're going to wipe exactly. us out because that's the thing to do. If there's a better intelligence out there, they'll realize that we're actually dumb. Right. That's yeah. why aliens haven't contacted us yet. We're a bunch of idiots. 
<laughs> They're waiting well, for us to get over There was an article ourselves. about that recently, Uh-oh. but uh, you'll have to look that up. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there right. was a whistleblower. Oh, yeah, it's probably I saw the that. strongest confirmation from a government official that we have vehicles, and there was even stuff about like we have non human bodies. Huh. So I'll just let y'all sit with that. Right. Don't look that <laughs> one up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was uh, yesterday. I saw that it was on like CBS or NBC, the whistleblower. So it was it was in the legit news, too. So there's things to be afraid of that aren't human. We can be afraid of more than just ourselves. (laughs) Seems to be working these past five years. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay, we're going to end this one from an article with a new atlas. Indoor plants are surprisingly good at devouring carcinogenic toxins. I feel like they keep going back and forth on this. They're like, well, live plants in your house are great. No, they're useless. No, they're wonderful again. <laughs> but I'll, whatever, I'll take the latest news. So they're good. They now. are specifically good at ridding your home of carcinogenic pollutants. It is a okay. sustainable, low-cost way of ensuring the air you breathe is cleaner. And given that we spend 90% of our time at home, school, in the workplace. <laughs> I guess they're, I don't know where, they literally made up that stat. But anyway, we got to And make 100% of it breathing. Like, I don't know about y'all. <laughs> I don't spend any of my time not breathing. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the air pollution we're worried about the most in this context is gasoline vapor, which has the big four VOCs, benzene, mm. toluene, ethyl benzene, and xylene. And these are super toxic compounds, highly carcinogenic, associated with respiratory disease, central nervous system degeneration. It is super, super bad. We've even got studies showing that gas stations can affect the concentrations of these chemicals inside schools up to 820 feet away. It's seriously bad. But we've got researchers from the University of Technology, Sydney, Australia. They showed just how efficient plants are at ridding indoor air of these nasty toxins. So conventional air cleaning tech like filtration devices and heating, HVAC, They can't remove gaseous pollutants from indoor air, but the ability of plants to remove a broad range of contaminants from the air has long been known. We just hadn't done any research to test how effective they were doing it until now. What the scientists did was make these small live green walls using indoor plants known for photoremediation abilities. They tested nine of these systems. Each of them contained devil's ivy, arrowhead vine, and spider plant. They placed these living green walls in sealed chambers exposed them to compounds, and then used gas chromatography mass spectrometry to measure all of the compounds. And what they found Hmm. was that the removal of the compounds was really high. After eight hours, all compounds were reduced to less than 20% of the original starting concentration. That's a really big deal. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. They also found that the concentration of pollutants influenced how effectively the plants digested them. So the more concentrated the toxins in the air, the faster and more effective the plants became at removing the toxins. So get you a spider plant. They're even pet safe, y'all. Question. Where does it go? Do you touch the plant afterward and just right. immediately die? <laughs> well, no, I think it's it's like converted in the plant and they poop out oxygen for us. That's kind of the So it's deal. broken down as part. It's not just segregated. It's like destroyed. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ideally. listen, New Atlas didn't tell me whether it's getting <laughs> where, stuck in where the soil. All that extra right. benzene is going. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> it's going to make a plant better, stronger, smarter, and our tool for surviving this new future. Just get you some plants for yeah, your house. Listen. I mean, worst case scenario, you just get a new plant every couple of months and throw yes. the old one away in a, like you know, a biohazard filter. bag. Or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just still get a plant, though. They make all your Instagram pictures look better. That's true. And that's <laughs> what matters. <laughs> that is what matters. <laughs> 
All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include how blind women are helping detect breast cancer in India, how to watch the first live stream from Mars, and how math has changed the shape of gerrymandering. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.